This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. This is Oz Davis, host of the Truly the Goats podcast. For episode 11, I interviewed author Dennis Crawford. Dennis is the writer of three books based in part at least on professional football in Tampa, Florida. His third and most recently based book is the autobiographical work The Life and Teams of Johnny F. Bassett, published by McFarland. The following is my entire unexpurgated interview with Dennis. Well, okay, not completely unexpurgated. I took out a couple of, um, added a couple of transitional scratches, but, but it's very close. Enjoy. Dennis Crawford, thanks for joining us on Truly the Goats. It is an honor to have been invited. Oh, an honor. Thank you very much. Let's get right into it. Tell me about your first two books and about this third book, The Life and Teams of Johnny F. Bass. My first book was on the 1979 Tampa Bay uh, Buccaneers. It was called McKay's nice. Men, and it was all about their first playoff team, You know how they went from worst to first. And then yep. I uh, did a follow-up book also on the Buccaneers called Hugh Culver House and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers because I, I discovered that even though the team was awful, their owner was a fascinating, you know, fascinating man, deeply flawed, not a good football owner, um, but just an amazing mover and shaker in the NFL. And I did not realize how much power he wielded in the NFL. So that was my second book. And then um, for Bassett, uh, I just, you know, kind of remembered the, the, the bandits. My, my goal was to write a history of the bandits, but then I realized mm-hmm. I wanted to write a book about the bandits because they were a fun team and they were my first true sports love because I was there. I, I remember their inception. I remember when Burke right. Reynolds was on TV telling everybody to go, oh, come yeah. and buy bandit tickets. And, uh, I remember you know, those were the first pro football games I ever went to were USFL games and, you know, seeing the lone horseman come riding in, shooting off his gun and, uh, Jim neighbors, you know, Gomer Pyle is down there singing the national anthem. And so I just was, I was like, Oh, I got to tell the story of this team. And then I realized the man who owned them was the star. He was the story. He he was going to carry this book. And I just did more and more digging. And I realized that the the bandits were like the culmination of 15 years of effort on his part to create a new kind of professional sports team. And, and then also there's just like that, that Greek tragedy part of it that, you know, the bandits died as he died. Um, I was like, my goodness, you couldn't, you know, a Hollywood scriptwriter wouldn't have been able to create somebody like Johnny F. Bassett. He had to have just been, born you know so so that's where i went i you know i wanted to learn as much about this 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 maverick as i could and hopefully people will enjoy his story because i i think people will find themselves in all of his efforts pr material for your book calls bassett one of the most influential sportsmen of the late 20th century now i realize you don't write the press material for your own work. However, can you expound upon that statement a little bit, especially given that Bassett never really played on any professional level? Yes. Uh, by influence, what I mean is, did he make or instigate change 
And from that regard, Johnny F. Bassett did. Um, although his teams never won a playoff series or uh, won a championship of any kind, the modern NFL and NHL were forever altered by the efforts he put into upstart leagues. Um, we have teams playing hockey in cities such as Tampa Bay and Dallas and uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. If Bassett doesn't prove that he can sell hockey in Birmingham, Alabama, then I don't know that those teams are there today. Um, the Buccaneers in Tampa have a pirate-themed football stadium now. It's like you walk into a Pirates of Caribbean set when you go to a Buccaneers game. In the 1980s, Bassett brought to Tampa showmanship. Uh, he brought Hollywood to Tampa in the way of Burt Reynolds as his co-owner, uh, inviting Lonnie Anderson to be part of the marketing team, playing up the uh, Smokey and the Bandit genre of his co-owner so that when he went to a Bandits game, it was almost like walking into a Hollywood set. So that's the influence that um, we get to. You compare and contrast in your book Bassett and P.T. Barnum. Now, of course, this is a, a an old comparison. I mean, even in the book, you quote Bassett's son as saying that people called him the Canadian Barnum. What's that comparison in brief? Well, Barnum has a bit of a mythology about him. Uh, it's one of those things where it's apocryphal, and I don't know that it's accurate that he really did say there's a sucker born every minute. Um but he did sell humbug. He sold spectacle. Um, you know, whether you're talking about uh, claiming that Josie Heth was a 118-year-old nursemaid of George Washington when he put her on display or any of the amazing things he put in the American uh, Museum, he was selling an experience to his audience and leaving it up to you to determine whether or not it was, it was factual. And Bassett, in the beginning of his career, was viewed as a Barnum-esque figure. I found that a little unfair in that he wasn't selling humbug. He wasn't conning people, uh, so to speak, the way that Barnum could. But he was trying to sell sports as spectacle. He felt that the um, ticket buyer deserved more than just a game for the price of their admission. You know, they deserved a full uh, sensory experience. Bassett's first foray into the world of professional sports management was his sort of attempt to organize an IndyCar race within Toronto city limits, including laps, I guess, around the Toronto Argonaut Stadium. Tell us in brief, how that went it did not go well <laughs> it was bassett's i think it was bassett's first introduction to the labyrinthine nature of civic politics in toronto at that time um ontario had built a, a wonderful facility just outside of the city limits called mo sports where um indycar races uh, were being held 
but Bassett saw a Grand Prix style race held in Montreal and decided, I want something like that for the city of Toronto. You know, Toronto is a, a barren sports landscape when the Leafs are not playing. You know, this is in the 60s. So you have Montreal, I'm sorry, Toronto Maple Leaf hockey. You got the Argonauts. And then Bassett says, you have seven months of nothing else. And so I, he wanted to bring spectacle to the lakeshore. So he worked with uh, various friends of his. They formed a small industry called Lakeshore Racing, and he established a two-and-a-half-mile serpentine court, course uh, right along the lakeshore of Toronto, including having not just going around Exhibition Stadium, but having the cars race over the playing surface of exhibition stadium and many of his uh, fellow citizens of Toronto were appalled by this because you're going to take away our park lands and you're going to have this loud auto race just down the road from people's houses and you're contravening the Lord's day and, and Bassett's really trying his best to satisfy everything saying, Oh, Oh no, we're going to hold it later in the day. I'm not going to stop people from getting to church on time. Um, it's completely safe. It's only this one day of the year. We're going to be able to bring 250,000 people here. It'll be a great show. And um, he just slowly loses each battle going forward. And I think he becomes relatively chastened by the experience. You know, he had hosted a couple of races. He and his father with the Toronto Telegram hosted the, the IndyCar races at most sport. So this kills off his his dream of a big race and what's ironic is that shortly after bassett dies in 1986 a course very similar to that is instituted and the i believe it's the the molson molson race but shortly after bassett dies in uh, in 1986 a course similar to the one he designed is used for an indycar race on the lakeshore of toronto and they actually award a trophy in his name to the winner of the race so um this is another example of his influence he was just too far ahead of his time the the politics of toronto in the 1960s had not caught up to somebody with that level of sporting imagination um, but in 1986, Toronto had grown more cosmopolitan. You have the Blue Jays as well as the Leafs. You have um, a burgeoning race uh, enthusiasts. You know, the most sports auto park is used even more. It just took a while for the city to catch up with Bassett. Yeah. Since, since Bassett's time, Toronto has won two World Series and one NBA championship. Uh, the, the Leafs may finally be becoming relevant again, and uh, the Argonauts, who were the big draw, are almost irrelevant now. Quite a flip there in Toronto sports history. Bassett loses four, five, six million on the Toronto slash Birmingham hockey experiment when the WHA merges into the NHL. His team has not chosen to merge. Would you consider? his tenure in that league a success or a failure? I would consider him to be like Apollo 13 in that he was a successful failure. Financially, mm. uh, he took quite a beating, although he became whole at the end, 
when the NHL and WHA merged, those teams that were not invited along did receive financial settlements. And, and those settlements helped him not only pay off the debts he accumulated with the Toros and Bulls, but also those he was still carrying over from his World Football League adventure. Now, the reason why I say successful as opposed to failure is because he did prove some very important points. He did prove that even in Toronto, the spiritual center of hockey in English-speaking Canada, it would support a second team. Um, attendance wasn't really a problem. He was he was getting close to 10,000 uh, per game in Toronto. Uh, the issue was not being able to find an arena of his own. Um, he was willing to put money into the CNE Center. He was willing to work with uh, developers to try and find a suitable place in Toronto so that the Toros could have a home of their own because paying an exorbitant amount of rent to Harold Ballard to play at Maple Leaf Gardens was just a crushing commitment that over time drove him out of the city. So his his belief that the city could support two teams was bearing out. It's the infrastructure of the city couldn't support two teams at that time. The fan base could. And he was also accurate in his belief that a European style of play would appeal. Uh, the NHL at that time was uh, very limited athletically, said the man who cannot skate. But it was still a lot of <laughs> clutching and grabbing and the broad street bullies and physical intimidation and neutral zone traps. But um, the WHA really wanted a free-flowing style and also invited a lot of European players to come and play. Um, European players were looked down upon at the time by the NHL as being uh, too finesse-oriented and not physical enough. And Bassett reaches out and brings Vaclav Nedimansky and Richard Farda from Czechoslovakia. He helps them defect uh, to Canada to bring their style of play. Um, he helps open up the Canadian juniors. The NHL had an agreement where they would not sign these 16 to 20-year-old Canadian junior players. Um, it was actually Colleen Howe, uh, Gordy Howe's wife, who found a, uh, a loophole that allowed Marty and Mark Howe to play for the Houston Arrows. And once that loophole was opened, Bassett dove through with both feet and was signing as many of members of the Toronto Marlboros, the, the junior team, the very popular junior team in uh, Toronto, also known as the Marlies, you know, getting Wayne Dillon to sign. Wayne Dillon, people had been dreaming about what it would be like when Wayne Dillon would finally put on a maple leaf sweater and Johnny Bassett swoops in and puts a Toro sweater on him instead. And Dillon ends up being a very productive player at an amazingly young age. So, so Bassett is successful in that regard, and he moves to Birmingham, and people are laughing. It's, how can you move to Birmingham? How are you going to sell hockey in the seat of the Confederacy of all places, the Atlanta 
Flames are struggling. They'll eventually move to Calgary. You cannot sell hockey to this audience, and Bassett just accepts it as a personal challenge. And within two years, you've got 12,000 people with very thick southern accents going, that's icing, or you know, chanting defense. Johnny Bassett, uh, his son, also John Bassett, was claiming this is the first time he'd ever gone to a hockey game and heard people chanting defense like they were at a Crimson Tide game. And so uh, Bassett proves that he's right again. The, the failure is that Bassett's proving that he's right alienates him from many of the powers that be in the NHL, particularly Harold Ballard, who was the owner of the Toronto Maple Leafs. He, he took market share away from Harold Ballard, and you don't do that to Harold Ballard. You don't take money out of his pocket and expect to have a long and fruitful life in hockey. And so Bassett's not invited to join the merged leagues. So in that way, it's a failure because Bassett doesn't get the ultimate prize of an NHL franchise. But I'm thinking as a romantic and as somebody who loves these kinds of stories, he was really successful because now the NHL is in the South. And 18-year-olds and Europeans do regularly play in the NHL. And so it's it's a successful failure. A lot of Bassett's ventures involved placing a second team in a major city. When he tried to get a stake in the World Football League, he put in the Toronto Northmen, and thus, as you put it in your book, touched off this wave of anti-Americanism among some Canadian politicians. But did Canadian politicians, did the national government have an argument vis-a-vis the Toronto Northmen versus the CFL? Well, First off, let me break that down into the component parts. I I would say that it's not so much that Bassett wanted to always go head-to-head when there was another team in town. It's because he was a passionate citizen of those places he called home. He was a native Torontonian. He loved Toronto. He adored that city, and he just felt it deserved better sports-wise. Yeah, he, des- he felt it deserved the auto race. He felt it deserved an American-style football team because it would get people excited. He felt that you know, the Maple Leafs had their place, but that there was an underserved population in Toronto who wanted a different style of hockey, and he was ready to give it to them. So I, I don't think he was necessarily trying to be a pain in the ass uh, to entrench teams. He truly loved Toronto, and he regularly vacationed in Tampa. They they lived just south of Tampa uh, part-time of the year for many years. So it's not so much he wanted to challenge the Buccaneers as he loved Tampa. And so he felt Tampa really deserved to be in on this exciting ground floor opportunity. But um, uh, getting back to uh, the second part of your question, the Canadian government had a point to a degree in that the CFL was a very carefully balanced structure. The CFL, uh, at one time, uh, up until I'd say the late 1950s, was on par with the National Football League. They often competed uh, for the same players, and 
Uh, sometimes when an NFL player would get tired of their contract, uh, they would play it out and jump to Canada, and some Canadian players would do the same thing. And so there was a level of equity between the two leagues, and they had to, you know, they even crafted a um, non-aggression pact during that time when Sam the Rifle Echeverry it looked like he was going to leave the Canadian League and go play for the Chicago Cardinals, and that was setting off shockwaves. We get to the 1960s, Pete Rozelle figures out television, we have the merger of the AFL and NFL, the Super Bowl becomes an unofficial national holiday. All of a sudden, NFL is viewed as being a far superior league, and American-style football is viewed as being a very, very superior style Um to the point that at one time the Canadian Rugby Union refused to allow forward passes because it would make us look too American. So when you get to the 70s and Bassett is unveiling the Toronto Northmen who are going to play an American style of football and he has signed three members of the back-to-back Super Bowl champion Dolphins to play for this franchise, a lot of teams in Canada are very worried. Because as I mentioned, there's a very special balance. The the teams that are largely in the western provinces, Calgary and the British Columbia Lions and Minton, are largely non-profit organizations, very similar to the Green Bay Packers. Whereas you get the teams in the eastern provinces, the Toronto Argonauts and the Montreal Alouettes, they're for-profit in major media centers, And the money that they make is split evenly with the teams out west. It was a process called gate equalization. And if Toronto's Argonauts are now going to compete with an American-style football team, the CFL is scared that that's going to impact the amount of money the Argonauts make per year. And if the Argonauts make less money, the CFL makes less money. And so... There's a financial stake there. Um, Mark Lalonde, uh, Pierre Trudeau's Minister of Health and Welfare, also argues that because Canadian football is the only sport played in Canada that is uniquely Canadian, that it needs to be protected. And so he and several members of Parliament, mostly representing the, the, the provinces in which there are the nonprofit CFL teams, craft a bill called the Canadian Football League Act, which was actually going to outlaw American-style football. And it was strictly to prevent Johnny Bassett and his team from establishing a foothold in Toronto. All right. It's elephant in the room time. Okay. I guess almost almost literally elephant in the room. (laughs) So much has been written about the USFL and specifically what led to the demise of the USFL, which by all accounts, many, many, many millions of Americans loved very much, myself Mm -hmm. among them, yourself among them, uh, being young folks at the time. Why this failed, the backroom machinations, the overexpansion, whatever. There's been a million ways uh, to talk about this. There's there's been a million things said about this. So I'm just going to give you three words and you can go. Bassett versus Trump. <laughs> well, I've, I've always loved to to talk too much um, about Trump 
See, why? In the last five years, he has tended to. I'm not making a political statement. Everybody's politics are their own. But even whether whether you're a diehard Republican or a die in the wool Democrat, you have to admit the man sucks all the oxygen out of every topic. But you cannot tell the history of the USFL without Bassett v. Trump. You also cannot look at those battles and not think 30 years later the entire nation is going to be engaged in similar style battles uh, during the Trump presidency. There were lies, truth, truth misrepresented, and half lies uh, all throughout this battle. Um, Donald Trump comes into the league in 1984. He purchases the New Jersey Generals because um, the owner of the team, J. Walter Duncan, just wants out. You know, he's an Oklahoma oil man, and he has no interest really in staying in New Jersey. He only took the franchise to help the league get started. And Bassett is a big believer in a salary cap, in establishing spring as the season. You know, we build our business slowly, and over a few years, we will eventually get to the point where the NFL will have to uh, as absorb some of us and let us be NFL teams or allow us to continue in the spring but somehow come in under the NFL umbrella as some kind of a minor league system or feeder system. Trump comes in and immediately wants to move the entire operation to the fall and compete head-to-head, um, believing that he could force the merger much more quickly and increase the value of all of the clubs. And so that fundamental difference between the two is always going to be at the heart of it. But what a lot of people don't appreciate and don't want to give enough credit for is the fact that Trump was not always an enemy of Bassett. The two of them actually had a lot in common. And I know I know that made some people I interviewed uncomfortable when I would point that out, but they were they're both the signs of very successful fathers. You know, um, Donald Trump's dad was a millionaire. Bassett's dad uh, was a millionaire. You know, they both were brought up in large empires, so to speak. Uh, they're both brash. They both know how to turn a quote. They both know how to get on both the front page and the back page of newspapers. Um, where they differ, though, is on their fundamental operating philosophy. Bassett was very blunt and honest and a straight shooter and always put the league first, whereas Trump was brash, would pretty much say anything that needed to be said to get his way and would stab you in the back <laughs> the minute he, he felt you were of no more use to him. And so that starts this divide uh, because originally Bassett was very excited to see Trump come into the USFL because he saved the New York area franchise. And you cannot have a major sports league in the United States unless you have a significant presence in the New York area. And if Trump didn't come in, the USFL was going to lose that franchise. So they, they're friendly at first. 
But then when Trump starts advocating for getting rid of spring play, getting rid of salary caps, that's where it turns sideways. The name of the book is The Life and Teams of Johnny F. Bassett, author Dennis Crawford. Thanks for coming on to Truly the Coach. Well, thank you very much for your time. And I just want it to be said that Johnny F. Bassett was a dreamer, but he was a very practical dreamer. And I think we all owe a debt of gratitude for those people who didn't necessarily win on the field, but without whose efforts, the games we love to watch today would be radically less than what they could have been. This has been an extra edition of Truly the Goats, a Sports History Network podcast. Thanks again to our guest, Dennis Crawford. His latest book, The Life and Teams of Johnny F. Bassett, is available at mcfarlandpub.com. Our theme song is Fun on Street, greatest remix of all time, produced by David Liso of Dynamo Stairs. This is Oz Davis for the Truly the Goats podcast. Until next time, stay healthy and stay historical. 